0: The school was situated at the northern edge of town, and over the trees I could see the steeple of St. Mary's, and part of the red roof of the four-story Weber building, our biggest building. A golden retriever had appeared from one of the nearby houses, and it rushed from one group of students to another, pausing only long enough to have its ears scratched or to be thumped on the back. I see them standing together, Meg Schiller with her long brown hair talking to shy Bobby Lucas, whom I had recruited for the chess club, Bonnie McBride with her usual stack of books, Hilary Du Bois carrying her violin case, Sharon Malloy running her fingers through her blonde hair again and again. There must have been students whose names I didn't know, but it felt like I knew them all. In some cases, I had been a classmate of their parents. A few boys began tossing a football, two others had a frisbee. Teachers looked at them impatiently as if to say that we weren't there to have fun. The students were better dressed in September new clothes, new shoes, new haircuts. In September, even the teachers feel hopeful. Harry Martini paced back and forth between the students and the town police, forming his own barrier. I'm afraid I have never liked him, and he walked splay footed like an old mother goose, heaving his stout belly after the movement of his legs. The teachers themselves reminded me of mother hens. It was not the first time that such comparisons occurred to me. It took thirty minutes for the state police bomb squad to arrive, and by then the school buses had come to take most of the students home. Many wanted to stay, but Harry Martini wouldn't allow it. The thing on the window ledge looked quite formidable, and there was no telling how much damage it might cause. The school was a two-story building of yellow brick built in the mid-1950s, and one imagined the bricks flying through the air like shrapnel. And, of course, Harry was terrified of doing something that would get him in trouble with the school board. I myself decided to stay to see what would happen, though Harry gave me a look. From where I stood at the edge of the police line, the bomb was a silver shape against the window. About twenty other teachers remained as well, and some people had driven out from town. Franklin Moore had come from the Independent, and he interviewed Ryan Tavich. The two were close friends, played basketball on Thursday evenings in the high school gym and often were together on weekends. Both looked very serious. Ryan kept taking off his cap and pushing back his short black hair. Franklin was tall, thin, and in his mid-thirties. He also interviewed Mrs. Hicks, who kept saying, We're lucky we weren't killed. She said it with a different emphasis a dozen times, as if practicing to get it right. Franklin's daughter, Sadie, had been a student in my seventh-grade science class, a pretty brown-haired, long-legged girl who carried herself like a dancer. By the time her father arrived, she had gone home on the bus. Her mother died of breast cancer two years ago, and I assume Sadie went home to an empty house, as did many of the students with working parents. Within a month, children wouldn't be allowed to be home by themselves. From the way the state police captain behaved, I expected the bomb to explode momentarily. The police moved their barriers even farther across the parking lot, pushing all of us onto the playing fields. Though Ryan Tavich was nominally in charge, the state police captain took over immediately. I didn't hear what they said, but the captain's facial expression was severe, as if Ryan had done something wrong, which, of course, he hadn't. Cars were driven around to the rear of the school so they wouldn't be damaged in an explosion. Two of the bomb squad men wore padded suits with silver helmets that made them look like spacemen. With binoculars, they studied the bomb and paper bag for quite some time. Then they approached with infinite care, carrying what looked to be a large white garbage can. We held our breaths. Really, most of us expected to see those white-suited men blown to smithereens. One of the men moved forward, slowly craning his head to peer inside the bag. He paused, looked down, and waved impatiently to his partner, who hurried over and looked in the bag as well. Even dressed as they were, I could sense their relief. Inside was a brick with the wires wrapped round it. It could never have exploded. Still, the men took great care in putting the dynamite, or what appeared to be dynamite, inside the white garbage can. Then they put the garbage can in a white panel truck and drove away. The police began to dismantle their barriers. Franklin Moore interviewed the state police captain. Later, we learned that although the bomb contained dynamite, it lacked a detonator. It had only been put on the window ledge to scare people. That same afternoon, Phil Schmidt, our police chief, admitted it was the second bomb.